Hello to you, my Southside Church friends. I know I'm a new face, but I am so excited to speak with you today. I have some great friends, one particularly you've heard of, George Franco has told me so many great things about you. And of course, I've talked to Leah and Carson, some guy named Mike Manis as well. And I've heard, again, just some wonderful things about your church, the way you're growing. And today, I'm excited to just to be with you, to share a story personally with you that I think will be helpful and encouraging. Last week, Carson Pugh spoke on prayer, and he connected prayer with the greatest of all time, Jesus. And he took us to Luke 11, which is the Lord's Prayer, and he walked us through some practical points that I think you'll find very, very helpful. You know, Carson described prayer in a very simple way, and I'm a simple guy. He said, prayer is talking to God, and that is it. I think some of us think of prayer as magical or mystical, but it's not, it's just conversation. And if you grew up in church, some of us, some of us think prayer's quiet because God must be old, right? And, and maybe we have to bow our head and close our eyes. And sometimes I was told, you, you fold your hands and make a steeple, right? What if, what if our prayers are loud? What if our prayers are angry? What if I'm scared or doubting God? I want us to walk through the story of David. If you're new to church, you've probably heard the story of King David or maybe even little David killing the big giant Goliath. But before David was king, he was like all of us, a little guy. And there came a season in the life of David where Samuel, the prophet, um, had to be told by God to go pick a new king. Saul was on his way out. There was a new king coming. He had given Samuel this um, he gave Samuel this uh, opportunity to go find the next king. So Samuel, because Saul is jealous, has to go sort of on a covert mission. He talks to this guy, Jesse, who has a lot of sons. In fact, he has seven sons. And the prophet Samuel asked Jesse, hey, I need your sons to walk through here. And they were studly. And that's not my opinion. It's in 1 Samuel 16. You can actually read the story. And so Samuel is sort of measuring up by their appearance. And God's like, nope, 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 all seven. He's praying, right? He's talking to God and he doesn't hear any affirmation. He's looking for that phrase, you're the guy. And so Samuel, the prophet, says to Jesse, the dad, like, hey, it, um, and maybe it's me, but do you have any more boys? And of course, Jesse's like, yeah, I got a young guy. He's out in the field watching the sheep. And of course, you know the rest of the story. David is God's next. Now, the cool part about David is, if you know before he became king, there was a couple things really interesting about David. David was a young guy who was, well, intertwined with God. Like he learned, we talk about prayers, talking to God, it's being intimate with God. And David as a young boy did that. How do I know that? Well, remember David talks about, as a shepherd boy, killing a lion and a bear. Listen, David can't be any more than like 12, 13 years old. That's supernatural. You may throw a rock or use your sling to hit him in the foot, but you're not going to kill a lion or a bear unless God has empowered you to do that. And he re recounts a story telling us that. And then I know you know the other story because he's not just going to church. Like he has a deep relationship with God. He has learned to pray or to communicate, to go deep with him. And the reason I know that is on another circumstance, Jesse the dad tells David to taste some, some cheese and crackers to his older brothers who are at war. So David, of course, obeys his dad, takes off his cheese and crackers to go see his 
older brothers. And you know the story, on the way, he hears this ogre and he's cursing and insulting God. And David says, um, that can't happen. Tells the king, I got this. Goes and grabs some stones for a slingshot and knocks down the nine foot bad boy. It's over. And you know the rest of the story is, David goes to church, he says his prayers at night, he gets involved in a small group, he becomes king and everything's great, right? No, that's not what happened. In fact, theologians tell us that somewhere between five to seven years, when Saul, the present king, knew David was coming up, he had a rage of jealousy towards David. In fact, he wanted him killed. So for five to 10 years, David is running from Saul. He's hiding in caves. He's living off the land. He is running for his life, not for five to 10 weeks or months, but years. And I don't know about you, but um, I think I would start to wonder when I was anointed king, you know, that big day, maybe it was a dream. I mean, after all, it's year three or five or seven. And I have to wonder, maybe David, did he think like I would have, was there a next? Is there another chapter in my life? You know, Psalms is part of the book of the Bible, has 150 chapters, and David wrote a lot of them. And we know those Psalms have got um, encouraging, exalting, uh, different pieces of who God is, his his creation, his um, faithfulness, his sovereignty, all those things are, are what we think of when we think of Psalms. Well, if you ever read some specific chapters in Psalms, you'll hear David between those five and 10 years, who he's, when he's running from his life or for his life, I should say, and there are verses about real life, real life. And Carson said last week, uh, part of this title, I believe, was from the head to the heart. And I so resonate with that because who can't love God when everything is going your way and there's a bluebird on your shoulder singing? That's easy. That's not deep, it's superficial. So here's a couple verses that I want you to listen to. These are from David in that season of his life. In fact, I don't want you to listen. I want you to feel these verses. Psalms 10.10 says, Oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? I remember those days. Psalms 22.14, David cries out to God, my life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And Psalms 13, one through three says this, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? In verse three, turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Man, can you hear the anguish in David's voice? And maybe, maybe you're there right now. Maybe these verses are just resonating with you. Maybe these verses are taking you back to a time you remember. And maybe you've had a good life so far, but I can tell you most likely before you leave this earth, you're going to encounter some hard 
tough times. So what does that look like if we are angry or mad? Or how do we talk to God? What's appropriate or not appropriate to do? And by the way, why would a loving God desire who desires intimacy, why would he want to take us through these kinds of things? I want to share with you a story of how God took me through a similar season that I think will be encouraging and helpful to you. So let me give you a little background. I'm a pastor's kid. Both of my dad's brothers are pastors. My uh, brother is a missionary. Uh, my grandparents helped in church life. Long story short is we have been ministering to God's people for over a hundred years. And the Shouse family is known for ministry and for family. And I personally started a ministry um, when I was 22 years old. I've been doing this over 25 years. And as Mike, George, Carson, and others will tell you, ministry is tough. My first 10 years, I was cutting my teeth on ministry, and I found myself in my early 30s at a church as an executive pastor. And we were in a church that was growing from 900 to 2,500 on the weekend in a matter of a couple of years. We saw the hand of God work in amazing ways. It was incredible. And then, like other stories you have maybe seen or heard, my senior and friend went on a conference, made a terrible decisions, and things came tumbling down. We left there trying to keep the church attacked, went to another church situation, had done my research, thought, okay, this is gonna be a fresh start for us. This is where we're gonna settle down, plant some roots and see the blessings of God, right? And then after the honeymoon season of work of ministry there was over and the real life of me and my boss, the senior, started to play out, I started to see, once again, some very deep, unhealthy character traits. And as I broached those to try to help him, he wanted nothing to do with solving or getting help or healthy in those arenas. And this has been seven or eight years now and we resigned we chose to move to Iowa, which was next to her family. And we were calling a timeout like anybody would after seven or eight years of walking through some tough seasons of ministry. And life was tough, or at least so I thought. And then life happened. You know those seasons where life is tough and it takes a total turn downward even more when you think it can't. I heard the words I thought I would never ever hear in my life. It was my wife saying I want a divorce. Hold, hold on a second. This can't be happening. If you remember, my dad's a pastor. My uncles are pastors. My brother's a missionary. All of my first cousins who are pastor kids serve in church. We have over 150 years of ministry experience. God, you surely can't be doing this. And, and by the way, the Shouse family never had a divorce before. We're known for ministry and family. Have you ever reminded God? what is fair. I mean, you know, the God who defined fair, but just in case he forgot what fair was, was really like. You see, I was devastated. Everything I'd ever taught or believed came just crashing down. If you ask me to describe my worst nightmare, this was it letter by letter. And not only was this my worst nightmare, um, the place, like I'm from the South, so in August, about this time, it's 110, 115 degree heat index, and that's perfectly fine with me. 
In Iowa, my hail is 35 below, probably like British Columbia sometimes in the wintertime. I can't stand cold. And so I remember for about the first those 18, 20 years thinking, God, don't ever let me be in Iowa. It's too cold. So now my worst nightmare is taking place in the place I never wanted to be. I went off on a conference to get training in the new job I had since I was in Iowa, taking a break from ministry. I come back, I find four of our large storage units empty, but my clothes, my tools, and my weights. It's at that point in time, I realize this divorce is happening. And I go behind the storage shed and I say and scream things at God that I'm embarrassed to say. In fact, a lot like we listened to with David, I was screaming, yelling, heartbroken, even cussing. And I remember telling God, I am a big boy. I will, if I have done something on your definition of fair, then place this on me. But I, I've got two precious boys. They're eight and 12 years old and they're innocent. How could you do this to me and to them? At this point in time, like David, that last verse we listened to, I am pretty sure I am going to die. As I mentioned with the two boys growing up, I, like you, was a dad, a pastor, a husband and a father that had dreams of, of the family dynamic we would have, of the times we would, memories we would make, the investment I would have with them, the provision and protection I would have for them. And to say I was furious at God would be an understatement. So here's the question. Is it okay to vent your frustrations to God? Well, without just talking theology, which I will, I want to also let you in on a little secret. I've never heard this preached before but I wanna testify that God understands our context. Let me say that again, God gets our context. Now, scripturally, 1 Samuel 16, seven says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, we, you know we do this. We size people up, we check things out, we judge their actions and their reactions. But here's the deal, God knew I wasn't just having a bad day. I was scared to death. I was frozen with fear. I was hopeless. And just that word hopeless means I didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And when you think there's no hope, you start doing and acting in ways that's not you. And I don't get it, I don't understand it, other than I've lived it. My theology said I probably crossed the line on the unpardonable sin and I wanted God to take me out but he didn't. He understood my context and he gave me grace and mercy that I can't understand, nor can I describe to you, but I'm so grateful for it. You see, I'd never known fear or hopelessness. The, the Shouse family, we didn't really have major problems. We knew in church life there were other people who had hurts and pains and family issues, but not us. And my first years of ministry were not that hard. But now I have a front row seat going to do battle was something I've never done before. You see, and maybe you've been there. There was these whispers that turned to screams. They were lies in my head. Lies telling me, you're a failure. Dan, 
There's not going to be a next. This is the end of your life. I would hear words like, you deserve this. And one that really froze me, Dan, your boys will be scarred for life. Let me just tell you, at this point, when we talk about prayer, those lies are coming and there's they're unending because the father of lies, the enemy, Satan himself, is so good at this, man. He's overwhelming me. And the way I had to battle that was with prayer, talking to God, screaming at God, weeping to God. And another thing I'm telling you that made all the difference in the world was worship. When I would worship in God's presence, part of that was communication with God, of reminding him who he is, of listening to his promises. It would take me to a different place and reshape my perspective and give me a glimpse of hope that maybe God was at work. You see, in this season, prayer, talking to God, it's no longer perfunctory. I'm no longer feeling guilty that I didn't pray. I am begging and pleading with my eyes, my ears, and my heart to see any movement of God every day. We're not talking weeks or months. This is a moment by moment kind of conversation. Because as you've heard, I'm battling for life and death in my inner heart. And when you start to look and listen and strain to see God, you will see him and find him in ways you never have before. You know, I remember very specifically, in fact, I will never forget a season as a single dad with two boys and I had a little home and I had a couple multicolored couches, you know, pull out couches, the kind you sleep on. And, and what I remember was God was teaching me something one specific time, this happened many times, but as we would pull out the couch, very often we would pull out the couch. I would lay in the middle of this pull-out bed and I'd have one son on one arm and I'd have another son on the other arm. And that was precious time. I could hold my boys. I could be with my boys. I could love them. Um, I could protect them. And what God was showing me in that season was that he was doing for me. You know, Carson mentioned last, last week, I should say, uh, he mentioned about the Lord's Prayer in Luke. But there was also a passage he mentioned in Matthew. In Matthew 7, I just got to quote this to you real quickly, that when I read this, it, it made me just stand in awe of God. And it's Matthew 7, 11. It's part of the Lord's Prayer. He says, if you then, being evil, meaning sinful parents, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? What he's saying is, you think you love your boys? It fails in comparison to my love for them. And in my world, nobody loved my boys more than I did. And when I read that, and I felt the Holy Spirit just come on me, I had to sit back and say, I don't understand that. You know, our worst pain is where our fear and our faith collide. And we experience God in ways we never imagined. Now, as tragic as this story started, it's not the end of the story. You see, then God started doing some crazy stuff. I mean, everybody knows when you get divorced, blood's thicker than water. So they remind you to separate yourself, right? I mean, you're going to get hurt, so separate yourself. But here's the problem. I'm not from here. My parents are 500 miles away. My brother is a missionary in the country of Jordan. I don't have people close. What am I supposed to do? And wouldn't you know it that 
my family, my ex-family started being family. A couple of little stories real quick. My, my ex-wife's sister's brother, right? So my brother-in-law, ex-brother-in-law, and ex-sister-in-law see what's going on. And they say, this isn't right. And they come to me and they buy me a house. They buy me a fixer-up so I can have a home with me and my boys. Who does that? For 30 years, I've heard some remarkable stories, but how does that happen? Started thinking, maybe there is a God and maybe he is at work. And another story, I had a, one of the younger um, cousins and uh, he was a young football player that was passionate about God, had a deep relationship. He heard what was going on. He wanted to take me to lunch. We sat down in a subway in our small community. And at that point in time, I couldn't share what was going on without not just tears, but weeping. And we got done with it. And this big old burly dude stood up. And you know us guys, we don't show a lot of affection in front of people. But what he asked me was, can I hug you? And I'll never forget those words because they weren't words. Uh, Jesus was speaking through him. You know, when someone says something and it goes not just in your ears, but to your heart. And I just remember when he asked if he could hug me, I felt the love of Jesus. And then two big burly guys are hugging each other in the middle of a subway restaurant. That's how my God works. And I needed a job. I mean, after all 20 years, I've been working in ministry. I didn't have a full-time secular position anywhere. No one should hire me. And yet, I found a job in a small medical company. And here's what's crazy. My boss was a former VP of a billion-dollar company. He's now the general manager. He hires me to be his VP of sales and marketing. He's a strong believer. He teaches me business, and he's been through a divorce. Almost like there's a God out there. He becomes a dear, close friend. And then three years passed, and I've wrestled with God, and he has rebuilt my, step, my, my faith, I should say, one step at a time. And one day I was in my boss's office. We had many conversations, very personal and real. I just said, hey, there's something stirring in my spirit. And he said, what do, you, what do you mean there's something stirring in your spirit? And I said, well, I haven't felt it in a really long time. And within a couple of weeks, I had a first cousin. Of course, you know, we're all shells and we're related. We're close. And she had moved to Missouri and invited me and my two boys to come down and hang out with her family. And we did that. We had an amazing time. And I also brought a trailer because she had a, another multicolored couch to fit into my single dad house, right? And, and so when we got there, she went over to a friend's house, or she, she took me to a friend's house to pick up that couch. But here's a problem. Um, she had loaned it to her friend for her son, who is going to college. Need I say more? Boy, couch, and college doesn't work. So when we get there, this friend of my cousin says, you can't take that. She says to me, I need to update my furniture. Take my living room furniture. Who does that? It's brown leather furniture. I'm a single dad. All I have is multicolored couches and a, another chair that a deacon friend gave me. Who does this? And I started talking to my cousin. She started explaining they were best friends. They'd been leading their student ministry. And she started describing her to me. And I thought, That's, this is too good to be true. She had been divorced 10 years earlier, was raising her two boys, loving God and loving people. And we, I would say, I had to write this lady a letter. I couldn't believe as I set this furniture in my house what it looked like. And as I wrote her a letter, we, we started to develop a relationship just by text. And we soon end up having some phone conversation. And then, well, 
we started to meet. And as we met, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist and I prepare maybe a little bit more as an OCD kind of person would. Um, but I said, hey, let's meet. And so we did, and I stayed with my cousin because I had a little time off, so we met for like three days. And like any first date, we walked through what anybody does, right? I mean, your background, how you grew up, your siblings, your spending philosophy and Dave Ramsey, your personality profile, right? All of us do that, I'm sure, on our first date, right? Well, as you can tell, I was very protective. Others were protective of me. I did not want this to ever happen again, and I was trying to find God's next. And I will tell you that it became very obvious by my cousin and her family, by my uh, family who was very protective of me and my inner circle that I had developed through this season, that they saw God was all over this relationship. And Lori was my gift from God. Now I wanna tell you about what I call a couple God weeks, because they make the story even better. So six months before I ever entered the picture, the patriarch of our family, six foot eight, Uncle Bobby Shaw's pastor, is has been with the family obviously a long time. And Lori, of course, is best friends with my cousin. And he sees her, he's, he watches her, he can see her, her heart. And he says to her one day, you know, girl, we gotta figure out a way to get you into the Shaw's family. And my creative, sarcastic wife said, that's great. It looks like adoption is the only option. And then another time, um, which is a little bit funny, but my nephews, the two boys of my cousin there, they, they were calling her Aunt Lori before she was ever Aunt Lori. And, and then another time, Lori's mom, one of the godliest and wisest women I've ever met. She says to Lori one day over the phone, hey, I've been thinking and I know what you need to do. You need to marry a pastor. And so again, my loving and sarcastic wife said, that's great, mom. Let's get on divorcepastors.com and find one. That doesn't exist, by the way. And finally, months went by, we get engaged. We're in Memphis with my parents. She said yes. And Lori, because we are not, um, we're not married yet, of course, she's going back to Missouri. I'm taking the boys back to Iowa. And as I said to her, honey, we're not in our 20s. We're in our 40s. Can we make this a short engagement? She says, yes, honey, but you know, there's a couple big things. I've got like this house to sell, and it's a pretty big house in a down market in her area. And I've got this job. It's sort of a specialty job. She's in medical sales, and most people just stay there till they retire. And so you're right. Like, that's a God thing. On the drive back from Memphis to her place in Missouri, she gets a phone call from a lady who cleans her house and said, out of the blue, of course, I clean house for another family and they like your house and just wanna know if you ever want to sell your house, they're interested. A couple weeks later, this family had just sold a John Deere dealership. They bought her house, they paid cash and took most of the furniture so I had to move so much stuff. What are the odds? Let me tell you, you can be in a desert place and God is still at work. But when God says the desert place is over and there's a new season, sometimes he just drops it. The other thing was a job, right? And so she's in a job in the Missouri area, been there forever. Her boss is her best friend and she knows she's getting married. So they're excited, but she says, hey, do you want me to call over to the small team of five or six in Iowa and see if they have a place for you, knowing that the odds are probably no way. And wouldn't you know that one of the guys who'd been there for over 30 years was retiring 
and the job was Lori's if she wanted it. God blows me away. So I don't know if this has ever occurred to you, but do you know that God knows what will make you happy, more happy than you, more content, more peaceful, more fulfilled than you could ever imagine? Isn't that a simple occurrence, but it's true. And people ask me now, so Dan, since the boys are grown, you guys have a new season of life, what do you want to do? And my response is always, what do I want to do? I never wanted to be here in the first place because God took a nightmare and turned it into a dream. So there's a few takeaways today I want to make sure that you grasp through this story and through the scriptures. The first thing is that God loves you and you can trust him. How do I know that? How do we know that? Because he's a definition of love and trust. And yet he's demonstrated love and trust by dying on the cross for us so we can have a personal, real, intimate relationship with him. The second thing is, is that he desires to be close to you. Your creator, your savior, savior, he wants to show you what it's like to live this life to the fullest, the last part of John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly or to the full. Remember the illustration of, of my boys on the pullout couch and both of them in my arms? That's what your heavenly father wants with you, to be close and intimate with you. And the third thing is he desires to take us from the natural to the supernatural, consistent deep communication with your Heavenly Father takes you from the natural to the supernatural. And I want to encourage you to go deep with God. Now we're about to end with a song, and this is a song that came across my path a few weeks ago. It's called I'm Listening, and it just mimics everything we talked about today. And here's my encouraging word to you. When you listen to this song, I'm Listening, I just want you to open your heart and let God speak. And as we end the prayer series, can I pray for us? Would you let me pray for you? Father, we thank you just as I speak these words, I am reminded of how good you are, how great you are as a creator and yet how personal you are as a savior. And Lord, I pray that today this crazy story, this is your story that I get to talk about, that you would remind people of how much you do love them and that they can trust you and that, Lord, you desire to go deep with them and that all things like Romans 8, 28 talks about, all things really do work together for our good and for your glory. So, Lord, do business with our hearts today. Let there be hearts that are soft and open. And would you speak your words of love and truth into our life today? In Jesus' name, amen.